Thank you. I praise the Lord for the opportunity to be here. We have thoroughly enjoyed our week. Like I said at the beginning of the week, Iowa Regular Baptist Camp is one of our favorite places in the whole wide world. And it's not because there are beautiful facilities, although there are beautiful facilities. It's not because the, cook, the cooks are wonderful, the food's wonderful, although the food is wonderful. Far more than that is the fellowship that we enjoy and our time together around the Word and just the rich times of being away from the world and apart to the Lord. And uh, you've, you've been a great part of that, a very important and significant part of that. And so we're very, very thankful for that. Uh, probably one of the highlights, if not the highlight of the week for me, has been the opportunity I have had to spend time with the, the staff, those that uh, kind of run the program and or preach or teach. So primarily the Seegerstroms and the Terlaus. Uh, you may not know this, but we get to stay together in the retreat center, and there's kind of a gathering area out in the middle there in the retreat center on the top floor. And so we find ourselves after the seven munchkins, I'm trying to get do, do the math in my head, after the seven munchkins have been put to bed, all cute little blondies, um, then we usually find ourselves out there just talking and playing games and enjoying time together, and we just really thoroughly enjoyed that fellowship um, Pastor Jared and Pastor Tyler and Pastor Tyler Betts, missionary Tyler Betts, all three of those guys were students at Faith Baptist Bible College when I was serving there, all young, aspiring to the ministry uh, students, and it's just amazing to me and so encouraging to me to just see how faithful they are and how well they are, they are just thriving in ministry. Uh, I'm not quite old enough to be their dad, um, not quite, not quite, but... Uh, you know, if I could have three sons like you, I would just... Ellen and, I are the same age. Ellen and you are the same age? Okay, then I am old enough to be Jared's dad. All right? Thank you. He was like that in, like, class in chapel, too. Just blurted out. Yeah. I think, yeah, well, yeah. Oh, okay, no. <laughs> Maybe you do take after me. No. <laughs> but uh, it's just thrilling. And, you know, I, I don't look at them as almost old enough to be their dad. I look at them as my peers. And we just love fellowship together. As, as peers, and uh, it's been thrilling to sit under Tyler's uh, teaching in the mornings, Jared's leadership of the whole program, and I know Tyler Betts has done a great job with the teenagers, and uh, just so thankful for each one of these men of God, women of God, and families that are being raised for the Lord. So could you just give, me, give them a round of applause as those that have led this ministry? Thank you, guys. Thank you, ladies. We're so thankful for you. I want to finish tonight before we look into the Word of God with kind of the rest of my, uh, my testimony. I kind of ended with God getting the most out of my life, and that was part of his call from the pastorate to serve as the president of Baptist Mid-Missions. And one of the things that God laid on my heart as I began to serve was a ministry that we've entitled Advance the Vision, which is what is BMM's vision for its future? And there are five core ideas to that. If you want to, you can pick up a brochure that tells about that back there on our table. But let me, just, let me just highlight the very first one. And the very first one is that my vision for BMM is to enlist over 20,000 prayer partners that would be willing to partner with Baptist Admissions to pray at least once daily what Jesus commanded us to pray in Matthew 9.38. In Matthew 9, Jesus said... The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. And then he went on to command, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest 
to send forth laborers into his harvest. Do you realize Jesus commanded you to pray that way? Jesus commands all of his followers to pray, and the word pray there is beg, to beg him to send more laborers into the harvest fields of the world. And so I just want to encourage you, if you've not yet become one of those Pray 938 partners, you can scan the code up there. That'll take you to our BMM website. There's a booklet in back that looks just like that that's right above a sign-up sheet. You can grab that booklet. But even more importantly, I would love it if you signed up. If you sign up by just giving us your name and email address, what that'll do is that'll tell us you're one of our daily prayer partners. And then I'll send you a personal email once a month to encourage you to keep praying the Lord of the harvest to send forth more laborers into its harvest field. Tyler mentioned this morning what Autumn does. She's one of those that are praying for this. And what she does is what I've tried to encourage everybody to do that becomes one of our prayer partners. And that is my cell phone is set for an alarm at 9.38 in the morning based on pray 9.38, Matthew 9.38. And my alarm is set for 9.38 at night. So one of the nights we were sitting there, we stopped the fellowship and spent some time in prayer. And you don't have to do that as one of these prayer partners But it's kind of a neat habit to just set your phone alarm and when it goes off, stop what you're doing. And I realize you may be in the middle of something you can't really stop, but just pray. Just pray right at that moment and say to God, send more laborers into the harvest field. The booklet that looks just like this is 30 days of how to pray. It's it's as a result of people coming to us and saying, you know, I've been praying for a few months and it's kind of becoming mundane, kind of becoming rote. And so I want to know how, how can I be praying? And so it's the fruit of one of our staff members there at BMM who put together 30 different days of prayer. And just this last month, we rolled that out as an app. So if you go to an app store and you just simply type in Pray 938, you will find the Baptist Midmissions app. And what that will do is that will give you a daily prayer, something to pray for each day. And it'll look just like the inside of the booklet. And it highlights different things for which to pray in relationship to Jesus' command in Matthew 938. And so... We're, we're thrilled to have more of you join us. I hope that you'll take the time to do that or just stop by the table on your way out. We'll be taking it down tonight. So if you could stop by the table on the way out, pick up a brochure, but especially sign up. And I promise you we won't put you on all of BMM's email lists, okay? You'll be on my prayer partner email list, and I'll look forward to staying in touch with you. And let me just also say that God is answering your prayers. I'm curious, how many of you are already doing this? I know Autumn said that she was. Are there any others in the crowd? I know some of the teenagers told me they were doing that. Okay. Well, for those that are, I see some hands in the back. Um, God is answering prayer. Here's here's an example. This was our latest class of missionaries. Just just, uh, this last month, we had a new class of missionaries being trained at the Global Ministry Center just outside of Cleveland there. And so you see 11 new missionaries. And then uh, with those and then others that are raising support, there are right now 33 missionary appointees for Baptist Midmissions that are in the process of going to churches like yours and raising support for their ministries. And they represent uh, the nations of Chad, Slovakia, Romania, Brazil, Peru, a Middle Eastern Creative Access Nation that we don't name, another Creative Access Nation in, in Asia, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, Alaska, Japan, and then three states here in the United States, Indiana, Florida, and Missouri. So there's 33 of them out right now raising the, their support, and some of you have had them in your churches. I hope that you continue to give invitations to Baptist Admissions missionaries to come and share their burden for the world and their heart for missions and partner with them. We appreciate so much your partnership in your churches. I say this on a regular basis. It, truth be told, Baptist Midmissions doesn't have any missionaries. 
Truth be told, local churches have missionaries. And we're just here to help serve you. As local churches, we're here to help you with the missionaries that, that you send and or support to help them get to the field and be able to serve for a lifetime of faithful ministry. So it's really an honor to be able to partner with you in that way. I would also say if there's an opportunity for me to come and speak at your church, I'd love to have that opportunity. With the exception of the months of July and December, we're out typically two out of three Sundays. Uh, missions emphasis kind of focus, sometimes missions conferences. I've done a few just Bible conferences as well. And so we'd love to be able to minister to your church if there's ever an opportunity, no matter the size of the church, okay? Does, does not matter. I've, I've been in really small churches of 20, 30 people and large churches alike. So it does not matter the size of the church. We'd love to come if we can be a blessing to you and your congregation. With that in mind, then take your Bible tonight and, and go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I've, ent I've entitled the message The Final Roundup because that fits with writing for the brand, although I'm a little hesitant um, with that title because it, it almost seems a little less than, uh, than awe-inspiring in terms of just the, the, what we're going to be talking about, and that is the, the judgment seat of Christ, just the very incredible nature of the prospect of the judgment seat of Christ would seem to merit a better title, but that's the best I could come up with and, and connect with our theme of, of writing for the brand. Uh, my, my fear is this, though, that there's a lot of confusion about the judgment and judgments uh, in the Bible and even the judgment seat of Christ. I read a story of, of a pastor who wasn't really good at expressing the gospel, and he was out on visitation, and so he decided to drop in on this old farmer and so he dropped into the old farmer, and after they had a little small talk, he said to the old farmer, do you belong to the Christian family? And the farmer said, no, um, they live two farms down. No, 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 I mean, are, are you lost? He's like, well, I've lived here for 56 years, buddy. I'm not lost at all. And then the, the pastor said, well, I mean, are you ready for the judgment day? And, and the farmer said, well, when is that? And the pastor went on to say, well, it could be today and it could be tomorrow. We don't know, but, but it, it could be one of those days, any day now. To which the farmer responded, well, when you find out for sure when it is, you let me know. My wife will probably want to go to both days. <laughs> and so there's a fair amount of confusion over the nature of the judgment and the judgment day and the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ and even the nature of those. And so I'm going to try to, from Scripture, make sure that that is clear in every one of our minds and clear in our thinking because biblical comprehension drives biblical motivation. In other words, when we understand what the Bible teaches about a topic and we rightly understand what the Bible teaches about a topic, that ought to then, in light of those truths, motivate us to do what God wants us to do. And certainly that is the case in relationship to the judgment seat of Christ. Biblical comprehension drives biblical motivation. Or maybe another way to put it is this. Truth transforms. Truth, rightly understood, and, and hitting home in our hearts, transforms. And so tonight, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture that's been in the heart of the two chapters of Scripture that you've been focusing on, we've been focusing on this week, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. And in the heart of those two chapters of Scripture, we find these few verses that will be our focus of attention tonight. Notice what the Bible says, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, when it says this, Therefore make it, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before 
the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Would you pray with me tonight? Father, it's been a great week. We have enjoyed wonderful times of worship, exalting your name, focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, pointing our hearts and our minds heavenward to glorious truths as we've lifted our voices together like a mighty chorus. How grateful we are for that. We have fellowshiped well together around campfires, around tables, just sitting out around the campgrounds and so many other settings. But we've also enjoyed fellowship right here in this chapel as, as we've opened our Bibles and opened our hearts and as your, your Holy Spirit has spoken to us through your word. And Lord, that's what we ask for again tonight. I pray that you would set me aside that, as the speaker that I would not in any way in my weakness or feebleness get in the way of the message from your word and that you would give me the ability to clearly communicate the truths and principles of the word of God. I pray that we would be good and attentive hearers. Lord, I know that many of us are a little bit tired tonight and so I pray that you'd help us to remain attentive and I pray that your spirit would speak to us and then we, that we would leave here not just content to learn but Lord, that we would not just be, be hearers but be doers also. May that be true of all that we have heard this week that we'd be doers of it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The big idea of this passage of scripture is simply this, that God wants us to be motivated by the prospect of the judgment seat of Christ. He wants us to be motivated by the prospect of the judgment seat of Christ. And tonight I want to point out three things that are taught in this passage of scripture. First of all, the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10 is where we'll begin with that. We'll come back to verse 9 in a little bit, where in verse 10 it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, or the, yeah, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. The reality of the judgment seat of Christ. Think about that in two ways. Number one, think of that in terms of the number. In other words, who is it that will be before the judgment seat of Christ? The Bible makes it clear that there are two distinct judgments. The distinct judgment between the great white throne judgment that is described in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. And the great white throne judgment will be strictly for unbelievers. And so the great white throne judgment is strictly for unbelievers, and then the, the, the judgment seat of Christ is for believers. So the number before the throne, this throne, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, is, is believers. Paul here, through the inspiration of the scripture, when he says that all of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's speaking to believers. That is an important distinction to understand that this is not the great white throne judgment. Very distinct from it. And so it's a matter of all believers. And there are two things that I think are notable in relationship to what the text says about all believers standing before the judgment seat of Christ. First of all, it is inescapable. Notice again what the text says. It says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so it is inescapable. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, there will come a day that you will appear before Jesus and give an account for your life. 
I'm reminded of a story that, that Paul Harvey ta- told. I used to love listening to him on WHO at noon every day. Some of you were religious listeners to Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey told the story of a man that had been uh, brought in and, and he was standing before a judge. He had committed a crime, standing before a judge. And sometime during the trial, he asked if he could be let out to go use a restroom, okay? So they recessed from the court and he was let go to a restroom, you know, of course, uh, uh, a guard stood outside the restroom door to make sure that he didn't escape, all that kind of stuff. Well, he had an ulterior motive. Once he got inside the restroom, he climbed on top of the toilet and went up inside the false ceiling of the courthouse and began to crawl his way, kind of hanging from the rafters, making his way between that space between the false ceiling and the real ceiling, making his way along. And he thought, man, I'm out of here. I have escaped judgment only to lose his grip and come crashing down through the false ceiling right back in front of the judge, back into the courtroom. Talk about inescapable. And in in a similar manner or illustrative of what we're talking about here tonight, it is inescapable for us to stand before or to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Secondly, it's also important for us to understand this, that the judgment seat of Christ is individual. So as you picture in your mind, do not picture Jesus on the judgment seat, you in front of him, in this crowd of all kinds of people back behind you getting this review of every deed and every motive and every stewardship of your life. It will not be you and a whole bunch of other people. It will be you and Jesus alone. How do I know that? Well, look at the careful words that are used here in this text of Scripture. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But then notice what it says next in verse 10. It says that each one, that is a very specific, singular word, and so we're there by ourselves. And then to back it up, look, look at what it goes on to say, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. And so we're speaking here in terms of an inescapable, but also individual judgment. There will be no spectators. It will just be you and the Lord. By the way, if that brings you some sort of relief that nobody else is going to be witness to your life, what does that say about who you fear? In other words, if it brings you comfort that nobody else gets in on it, but you're still appearing before Jesus, that says that people are more important than Jesus himself. So the prospect of standing or appearing, excuse me, before the Lord is a very significant one. Think about that. But then also notice the the nature, not just the number, all believers, but the nature of the judgment seat of Christ. And we see this in terms of the word that Paul uses here in verse 10 when he says, for we must all appear, appear. And that sounds like a pretty, you know, innocuous term in English that we would appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but it is far more strong in terms of its descriptive nature in the original language. The word appear does not just mean you're just there, all right? It does not mean that in the original. The word appear means to render transparent. Think about that for a second. To, to lay bare, someone has described it as this, to submit to divine exposure. Another person puts it this way, it means to be turned inside out in front of God. 
That's what it means to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Other verses of Scripture describe it in a variety of ways. One that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, where it says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, then each one's praise will come from God. And so this appearing before the Lord will reveal even the, the, the thoughts, even the, the inner counsels of the heart. I think that's describing the very motives by which we lived our lives. And so to appear before the judgment seat of Christ will be a time of transparency. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 also speaks of it in a little bit different manner, but in a, in a similar way, perhaps with even more uh, picturesque language when it says this in Hebrews chapter 4 and then in verse 13. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it gives you an idea of, this, of the serious, seriousness of the situation that, that God will, will stand before God. It will just be the two of us and everything will be laid bare. God will reveal those things that were otherwise unknown by people, including the, th the thoughts and the intents and the motives of the heart. Is that not a sobering thought? Does that not cause you to just pause and ask yourself the question, am I ready for that day? What, what, if, it, what if it were today? What if Jesus came back and raptured his church or God forbid, but something happened to me and all of a sudden I died and I was in the presence of Jesus and eventually stood before the, am I ready for that day for everything in my life to be laid bare, including the thoughts and intents and motives of my heart. It's no wonder that years ago, a man by the name of Daniel Webster, who was described by historians as one of the most brilliant men that has ever lived in America. He was a statesman. He was a, an orator. He was a leader. All those different things. He was elected to several offices. And, and one time he was asked to speak to a, a group of about 25 leaders at a very select banquet in his honor. And Daniel Webster was asked to, uh, posed a pretty significant question. He was posed the question, sir, what's the greatest thought that ever entered your mind? And pause for a second and think about that in terms of this is a brilliant man, okay? And brilliant people think at levels that us normal people don't think at, right? And so this extremely brilliant man is asked, what's the greatest thought that ever entered your mind? And without hesitation, Daniel Webster replied, the greatest thought that ever entered my mind was the thought of my responsibility to God. And as those words came out of his mouth, he began to, to, to weep. Just the very prospect of appearing before God Almighty caused him to weep. And actually, he got up and he left the room so that he could regather his composure. And after several minutes of spending some time just regathering his emotions and getting himself under control, he came back into that group that was gathered to, to, to honor him for this special banquet and he proceeded to spend the next 30 minutes explaining to him why that was the, to them why that was the most serious, that was the biggest thought, so to speak, that had ever crossed the mind of Daniel Webster. 
us appearing before Jesus Christ and the reality of that judgment ought to be a sobering and motivating thought for every one of our lives. Secondly, notice the results of the judgment seat. The results of the judgment seat there. Again, I, I've turned to 1 Corinthians. Let me turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with you in verse 10. It says this as we read the rest of verse 10. It says that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this is where the interpretation of this text gets a little bit complicated, all right? And it gets a little bit complicated because I'm guessing there are some in the room that won't altogether agree with all of my conclusions, and that's okay, all right? I, I say that because when I was studying theology, my theology professor said something along the lines that the judgment seat of Christ is always and only a, an awards platform, and it will be that, and he at least implied, I took it as, as that it will be a positive experience because it's, it's only about being rewarded for your faithfulness. And probably there are a number here, that's the way you view, and that's okay if you differ from me on this, that's okay, not a problem. Uh, it's not one of those things that, uh, it's not a hell I'm gonna die on, but I wanna at least challenge your thinking, okay? I wanna at least challenge your thinking in that 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to go there for a second, and verse 15, I think, says something very significant in relationship to the judgment seat of Christ. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 15. Again, this is speaking in terms of eternal rewards, you know, gold, silver, and precious stones, those things that will last that represent uh, eternal value because of how you lived your life, and then wood, hay, and stubble, those things that are going to burn up that, that represent things that, that our, our lives were only temporal in nature. So it's in that context of the judgment seat of Christ type of wor- verbiage, it says this, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's work is burned, the work of their lives, he will what? Suffer loss. That's not loss of salvation, okay? But he will suffer loss. In other words, he, he won't be rewarded because if all he has is wood, hay, and stubble and there's no gold, silver, and precious stones, there's nothing to show at the judgment seat of Christ. And then notice what it says, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Kind of like saying, he made it to heaven, but didn't really have a whole lot to show for his life. Let me ask you tonight, if, if, if that was you and you were at the judgment seat of Christ, would the occasion of the judgment seat of Christ be a happy one? No, it would be one of regret, would it not? If you lived your life in such a manner that you really had virtually nothing to show for your life, nothing to show for how you lived. And so while people emphasize the, the judgment seat of Christ, they, they refer to the, it as the bema. That's appropriate. Okay, the, the Greek word that's used is the word bema. But 1 Corinthians 13, or excuse me, chapter 3 seems to imply that the bema is not just an athletic awards platform. Okay, I, I know that's typically how it's described. And it was used that way. The word bema was used in two different ways. It was used, number one, to describe an athletic awards platform, but number two, it was used to describe a judge's seat. A judge's seat. As a matter of fact, every single time that it is used in the rest of the New Testament, all eight times, it's used to describe the seat of a judge. 
a courtroom style judge. I won't go to all those references, but if you want to do a word search and you can word search Bema, you will find all kinds of examples of the judgment seat of Pilate, the judgment seat of, of, uh, of Festus, the judgment seat of Agrippa, and the judgment seats and, and all kinds of other manners, but it's, it's always this seat of a judge. And so I, I, I think that my understanding of of, of the judgment seat of Christ could be described in this manner, that it is a manner of accountability. It's a manner of accountability. Will it be for rewards? Absolutely. All right? It will be for rewards. I'm not denying that whatsoever. I'm so thankful. It, the text makes it clear here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But there's another side to it as well. So I think the key word to, to focus in on is this word accountability. And even, even Romans 14.10 is another example of it being described, even though that's a Bema type of setting, a, 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 that kind of setting, it, it, it points to accountability. So this accountability, and let's make sure we understand what I'm saying, this accountability will not be one where a believer's individual sins will be rehearsed or condemned as those deeds were judged at the cross. I put that on the screen on purpose just so nobody walks away thinking that I was preaching or teaching that we'll be held accountable for our sins because Jesus already paid the price. Amen? He paid the price for our sins. So it's not about that. It's not about that. Rather, we will give account for the faithfulness of our lives and the motives of our hearts. So scripture clearly teaches both of these ideas depending on a believer's faithfulness. So there will be reward and regret, regret okay, if, if we were to categorize, and maybe area in between those two as well. Robert Gramacki, well known in our circles for, for his writings and, and a lot of good work in the areas of theology, put it this way, the faithful servant will not be afraid of that day, but the slothful servant will worry that he will finally be found out that it'll finally be found out for being the lazy servant. And so let's, let's think about, just quickly, I'm going to move through the concept of reward. First of all, think about reward. The text puts it this way there in 2 Corinthians 5. It says that, they'll, that we will receive the things done in the body. And then it goes on to describe those in terms of the, the things that we have done, whether they are good or bad. And so there is the prospect of reward. I don't want to minimize that at all. If anything, I should maximize that. The, the very prospect that, that, that we will appear before the Lord Jesus... Then have the potential of him saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant, and then, and then inviting us into rule in his kingdom is a wonderful prospect. We don't take the time to go there, but the Bible speaks in terms of five different crowns, they're actually wreaths, that will be placed on the heads of, as descriptions or as rewards for our faithfulness. The crown that is incorruptible for running well, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. A crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20, for winning souls. Crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 8, for loving his appearing. appearing the, the crown of life, James 1, 12, Revelation 2, 10, for enduring trials. And the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, for pastoring faithfully. Those, by the way, are not diadem type of crowns, that's the Greek word for a gold crown, they're actually wreaths, they're the victor's crowns that were given to those who had run well in the races of the time period in which the Bible was written, they're victor's crowns. And so we have that kind of prospect to, to look forward to. Now here's where I, I go again, and a little bit of conjecture, okay? 
what are we going to do with those crowns? Right? I mean, are we going to like wear them around for all of eternity? Now, the Bible does not specifically say that we will do this, but I think given inference, I think we can make the conclusion that we will probably do this because in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, you get a glimpse of the throne of God and 24 elders who have actually golden crowns on their heads. They're not wreaths, they're golden crowns that are on their heads. And what do they do with them? They cast them at Jesus' feet. Book of Revelation doesn't go on to tell us what we're going to do with our wreath-style crowns, but I can't help but think that if the 24 rulers cast their golden crowns as expressions of worship at Jesus' feet, don't you think that we'll do something like that? I can't help but think something like that's going to happen as an expression of worship. So, here's my question. Will you be somebody who lived your life for yourself as a professing Christian and did very little for the Lord, who will reach for their crown only to discover there's not one on your head because you haven't served Christ like you ought to. Limiting your opportunity to express your love for Jesus. Limiting your opportunity to worship the one who died on the cross for you. Imagine what it might be like to have nothing to cast at Jesus' feet. Reward. I hope that you are all looking forward to the day and that you are living your life, your life in light of the day that someday you'll stand before, you'll peer before Jesus. And I hope the most powerful words to you of any words ever spoken are the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I hope you're living for those kinds of rewards. Because I think the other option is, is that there will be some that, that stand before the, or appear before the judgment seat of Christ with regret. Because our text, look at what our text says, that we will, we will be given the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I didn't make the emphasis like I should have on the good. The good speaks of that, that's of eternal value. And the bad, these are not evil good or good and evil type of terms that are used here, but that which is temporal in value. 1 Corinthians 3 describes it as wood, hay, and stubble. And so for, for some Christians, they'll have little or nothing to show for their lives. Or as one, as one person has put it, for some Christians, the judgment seat of Christ will be a negative experience. And again, some of you may disagree with me on this. Some of you may say, nope, it's only positive. That's okay. This is my understanding of this passage of scripture. And I would encourage you to also tie it together with the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, the parables, because if you go back to the parable of the talents, if you go back especially to the parable of the pounds, as, as each one of those individuals comes before the Lord and they're held accountable for the things that they've, they've done with what they were given, what happens to the last one? I'm thinking specifically of the parable of the pounds. What happens to him? He is rebuked for his what? Laziness. He's told that he's lazy, and his laziness, actually, he's told for his, he's told he's wicked. He's wicked because he squandered what the master had given to him. At the very least, for those who have lived for themselves and are believers, the judgment seat of Christ will be a time of regret, perhaps a time of rebuke. Maybe that's why 1 John 2, 28 speaks of not being ashamed at his coming 
Because there may be some that are ashamed that is coming because they've lived their lives in such a way that they've not lived in light of the judgment seat of Christ. Imagine what it would be like to appear before the Lord you love and not be rewarded for faithfulness. And not be rewarded at all because of your unfaithfulness. And what if, what if Jesus simply looks you in the face and has nothing to say? In some ways, that might be worse than a rebuke. For Jesus to have nothing to say because you've lived your life for yourself and not faithfully served him. Sadly, I think there will be a lot of Christians that that will be their experience at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't let that be your experience. By faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ and investing your life in what matters. And that's really what the third point is tonight. How then are we supposed to live our lives? If, if we look ahead to this day where we're all going to be laid bare in front of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, how should we live our lives in light of that? Well, let's look at the responses then to the judgment seat of Christ. And I think it's the sandwich of this text. The sandwich in the sense that the text begins in verse 9 with a, with a therefore, and the text ends in verse 11 with a therefore, and it's the truths that are taught in those two verses that are the responses to the judgment seat of Christ. So in light of the judgment seat of Christ, how should I live my life? Well, number one, I ought to live my life with the goal of faithfully pleasing Jesus Christ. Faithfully pleasing him. Notice what it says there. Therefore, we make it our aim, verse 9, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. We make it our aim. The idea of aim, it's actually a really complex word. It's a compound word. It's two words put together. And it speaks of labor, but it's, a, it's labor where you love doing something and you work hard at it because it's good. You work, work at something honorable. Someone has described it in this way. It, it's a noble ambition. And so your noble ambition in the Christian life is to do everything to please Jesus Christ. It's a word that's used in a lot of other places. In Romans 12 or 15, 20, I make it my aim to preach the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, aspire to leave a, lead a quiet life. And, and other places like that. So it's this idea of aspire and, and this idea of noble ambition. The most honorable ambition you can have in life is to please God. Think about it. Pleasing God, after all, is a higher aspiration than even obeying God. Have you thought about that? Pleasing God is even a higher aspiration than merely obeying God. I mean, you know this intuitively as parents, right? When you tell your child to take out the garbage and they take out the garbage and they go and do their job and they do the least that they possibly can to take out the garbage because they're just simply obeying you. Versus if you ask your child to take out the garbage and they don't pout, they don't stop, they just go and take out the garbage. And not only do they take out the garbage, but they clean out the garbage can and they put a new garbage liner in it and they come in and tell you what they, what they did because they want to, they please you, they want to please you. You know, when our kids were little, we used to, um, this may, for some of you, this may seem like weird family fun, okay? But I love to go shooting with my kids, all right? So I taught my kids. I thought it was cute. One of, the, one of the kids over in the retreat center, I'm not sure which one it was, walked up to me when I was looking at my PowerPoint this afternoon and said, what is he doing? And I think there's a slide of this. What is that little boy doing? 
And what this is, is Carson, as a little boy, he got a 22 after learning how to shoot the BB gun. He got a little 22. And so one of the things we just, we just enjoyed doing as a family is I took my kids, all, of, all four of them out, taught them how to shoot, and they all enjoyed it, uh, I think. Yeah, they did. Um, they told me they did. Um, part of it is, is we would go out in the country, and then they'd also get to drive the truck on the gravel roads at a really young age. So maybe that motivated them as well. Um, but I can remember one time when we'd been out shooting something like this, and I don't know how old Carson was, probably five, six, seven, man, maybe six, seven, eight, something like that. And I remember him, him like tapping my leg after he had gotten done shooting, okay? And he tapped my leg, and, and I looked down at him, and I said, what, Carson? And he said, Daddy, he said, Daddy, did I do a good job? And I remember looking down, and this was a big deal to him. I remember looking down into his eyes, making eye contact with him and saying, Carson, you did a great job. You were a really good shooter. And of all things, it just brought, he just got this huge smile on his face that daddy had said to him, you did a good job. Why? Because he wanted at that age in life to do nothing more than to please his daddy. And in the same sense, we should want to do nothing more as we think about standing before our Savior. We should want to do nothing more than to please our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a life that, that will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ is a, a life that, if I can put it this way, that is obsessed with pleasing Jesus. That is the, the, the highest aspiration of a person's life is pleasing Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're at school, whether you're out for a sport, whether you're in the workplace, in the home, in your relationships, in your decision-making process with your spouse, uh, with your parents, with your neighbors, at church, every one of those contexts, the, the big idea or the big question you ought, ought, ought always ask yourself is, what will be pleasing to Jesus? What will please Jesus? Tonight, as you think and think back to that story of me smiling at Carson and him smiling back at me, as you think about your life and how you're living it right now, how would you visualize the face of God peering down at your life and looking to your, into your eyes? In other words, in light of how you're living your life, what expression... Do you think Jesus has on his face as he's locking eyes with you? Is it a smile? Is it a big smile on Jesus' face because you're living to please him? Is it a cringe because of your life that is displeasing to him? Is it, is it a tear running down his face of disappointment because of your disregard for him? Is it pity because he knows you could have a joyful, fulfilling life if you put him first in your life. Make pleasing him your life's greatest ambition and the smile of God your life's greatest ambition. Faithful pleasing. Secondly, there's a fearful prospect. A fearful prospect. And for this we jump to verse 11 where in light of all that, that Paul said here about the judgment seat of Christ, he says, knowing therefore, okay, He's just talked about appearing before the Lord, knowing therefore the, the, the terror of the Lord. 
Terror is probably a strong word there. I'm guessing that a lot of your Bibles have the word fear or something along those lines. It is the word that typically is translated fear. It's the word phobia that we get our, our word phobia from. And there are a variety of ways of, of defining that. Um, fear is the most typical one in most of our Bibles. Some have used fear in the sense of terror. That may be too strong. Uh, reverential awe is probably the one you've heard the most. That might not be strong enough. And so let me just, in light of all the instances that the fear of God is used in the Bible, which I think there's something like 125 references to the fear of God in the Bible. In light of all of those, let me give you a definition of what I think the fear of God is. The fear of God is a mingled sense of fear, reverence, admiration, wonder, worship, love, and submission elicited by God's person, presence, and power. That is a reflection of 125 verses put into one sentence, okay? I don't have time tonight to unpack that. That could be an entire series on the fear of God. But I hope that at least gives you a glimpse of what the Bible is speaking of when it says, therefore, in light of the fact that we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ, there, there ought to be in our hearts this response of fear. Therefore, the terror, knowing the terror of the Lord or the fear of the Lord. John Murray described the fear of the Lord in this way. It's the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. It's what motivates the believer. And again, this is taken from all 125 verses because you have examples of, of this in those 125 verses. It motivates the believer to avoid evil, to hate evil, to obey God, to have a diminished, humble view of self, to serve God, to give for the Lord's work, to worship God, and to trust God. All of those things are expressions of the fear of God. And this is a reference back to the judgment seat of Christ. The prospect of appearing before the Lord should stir within us such a holy awe. And again, this points to the fact that the judgment seat of Christ is about accountability because athletes that are only getting awards don't stand in awe or have a sense of fear of being given an award. So it can't just be that. Someday each one of us will come face to face with our Savior and give an account for everything we have ever done, for every thought, every deed, every word, every opportunity, every moment, all of our time. And that is an awesome prospect using the word correctly. Nothing should motivate us to love, to serve him with every fiber of our being like the prospect of giving an account to the Lord Jesus someday. Fearful prospect. And then finally, and we're done, fearless persuasion. In light of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, we ought to fearlessly persuade men. Notice the way our text puts it there in verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The idea of that word persuade is to convince. It's oftentimes used in the New Testament in connection with evangelism because evangelism is primarily a ministry of Holy Spirit-enabled persuasion. I won't give you all the instances, but there are many of them in the book of Acts. And our tendency sometimes, our tendency sometimes is just share the gospel with kind of the mindset of, well, they can do whatever they want to with it. And yet you see the Apostle Paul especially just being described over and over and over again in the book of Acts as persuading people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there, there ought to be a persuasive nature to what we do, not just giving out tracts and, and occasionally saying a word or two and just, that's it. 
No, but there ought to be a desire. Nothing wrong with giving out tracts, by the way. But there ought to be a desire to actually persuade one. And we know the Holy Spirit does that work. But to persuade somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ is what motivates that. The prospect of giving an account for those with whom we've shared the gospel. For whom will you have to give an account for someday that God wants you to share the gospel with? A neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member, someone who's lost, who's worth searching for, right? And someday we'll give an account for whether or not we were faithful in those opportunities and persuading people to tr- place their trust in Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the day of the judgment seat of Christ? Are you prepared to stand before him, appear before him? Are you living to please him? Are you faithfully serving him? And are you persuading people for him? So we wrap up tonight. I want to give you several answers to our questions. So what? So what, do we, what should we do with what we have just heard tonight in light of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ? Number one, make pleasing God your highest aspiration. Make pleasing God your highest aspiration. Number two, live every day to be ready. Live every day to be ready for the final day. Jonathan Edwards is a well-known preacher of yesteryear, and he put together a whole list of aspirations or resolutions as a very young man. One of the things he had in his resolutions was a resolution that simply said, live every day to be ready for the final day. Live every day to be ready for the final day. Thirdly, constantly ask yourself what will matter the most at the judgment seat of Christ. As you invest your life, as you invest your time, as you make choices in life, what will matter most at the judgment seat of Christ? Because so much of what we do won't matter at the judgment seat of Christ. Number four, steward your time, talents, and treasures, which really fits with the previous one. You know, we're only given so much time. God has given us various talents. God has provided for us financially. In every one of those areas, we ought to be asking ourselves the question, what should I do with this time, my time? What should I do with the gifts God's given to me? And what should I do financially in light of the fact that I'll stand before Jesus someday and give an account of my life? Number five, long to hear Jesus say, well done. Another one I think that I put in there that I don't have in my notes is something in relationship to stewarding your, your, your retirement years. Don't waste your retirement years. I know that there is an American mindset that when you retire from your job that you're supposed to take life easy, but the Bible never says take serving God easy. In other words, when you get to retire from that job, invest the time that you didn't used to have and do more in service for Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that just disheartened me in the worst way as a pastor was when people would say, you know what, I have done my time in Sunday school. It's somebody else's turn. As if teaching Sunday school was a prison term or, or serving in some other ministry was like a prison term. I've done my time. No, and don't waste. You, all of us will give an account for all of our lives, including the post-65 years. Don't waste your retirement years. And then long to hear Jesus say, well done. 
I hope that those are the most important words that you know. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then finally, like I said last night, persuade men. Persuade men. Father, thank you for our time together again tonight. It's been sobering, really, it ought to be. And at the same time, encouraging as, as we strive to live our lives and steward our time so that we can hear you say, well done. May, that, that, may, may the truth of this message tonight be the driving motivation in every one of our lives. And may we never forget day after day after day that someday we'll appear before you. In Jesus' name, amen.